Welcome to the Phase World Podcast. Engaging conversations that cross the boundaries between business, art, and the digital world. Science is a team sport, right? It's it's not about an individual uh, doing something on their own, you know, in a dark lab somewhere. And particularly in clinical research, outcomes, health services kind of space. And I really, really feel lucky to have wonderful collaborators in support in the work that I'm that I'm doing. There are at least three service members that are home today with their families that would not be here if I hadn't been there. So. That is a deeply satisfying thing to have been a, a part of. I always try to tell people that I think it's important to keep an open mind because you may have spent every ounce of energy up to a certain point uh, focused in one area, but there may be something else that may be related, it may be synergistic, or it may be totally different. But I think it's important to sort of maintain the, that mindset. I think like with anything else, whether you're young uh, or old, white or Asian or black, gay, trans, whatever, if you can prove yourself and you can do the work that you are assigned or set out to do, then those things shouldn't matter. Hey, it's Faye and welcome to Faye's World. This is my world and also yours. Most of the guests on our show are people right around us. Sure, some of them have appeared on TED Talk, performed in a circus, or saved lives, such as our guest today. They aren't out there in the public eye because they're so busy doing what they do. Therefore, I thought, why don't I just create something to celebrate their contribution to the world? Trust me, for nearly three years, this has been the most rewarding thing I have ever done. And it's ongoing and addictive. Today, I have Dr. Jesse Ehrenfeld with me on the show. Dr. Ehrenfeld is board certified in both anesthesiology and clinical informatics. He was trained at the Massachusetts General Hospital right here in Boston and finished his fellowship there in October 2010. Today, Dr. Ehrenfeld lives in Nashville, Tennessee, and works for Vanderbilt University as a professor of anesthesiology, surgery, biomedical informatics, and health policy. I know, that's a mouthful. In 2014, Dr. Ehrenfeld was elected to the American Medical Association Board of Trustees, where he has the honor and also privilege of serving as the voice of all physicians across our nation. The list goes on, really. Dr. Ehrenfeld could have easily been the person I chat with while questioning my own existence and accomplishment. You know what I mean, right? We've all felt that way at some point in our lives. He was not only easy to talk to, but also shared some of his life-changing experiences in the military not so long ago. On April 7th, 2008, Ehrenfeld was commissioned as a lieutenant in the Naval Reserve. And in 2014, Ehrenfeld was called to active duty and served a tour in Afghanistan at the NATO Roll 3 Multinational Medical Unit, where he was constantly relied upon to care for wounded U.S. service members and coalition forces. 
A longtime advocate for patients, equality, and LGBT health, Dr. Ehrenfeld made international headlines on February 22, 2015, when he asked the newly appointed Secretary of Defense, Ashton Carter, his stance on letting transgender individuals serve in the military. Hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Please welcome Dr. Jesse Ehrenfeld to the Face World podcast. So you're currently based in Nashville, Tennessee. That's right. I've been in Nashville since 2010, coming up on seven years this summer. Wow. When I googled your name, you know, MGH just really doesn't want to give you up. It says Mass General <laughs> Hospital, <laughs> phone number, building, everything. Yeah, it's the paper trail on the internet that never goes away entirely. But yeah, I, I left MGH、uh, in 2010 to. Take a position at, at Vanderbilt.、Um, I was basically recruited to create a research informatics division within the Department of Anesthesiology, and I've had the pleasure of building up that team over the last、uh, period of time. And I've taken on a number of other roles since I've been here at Vanderbilt. Wow. So yeah, let's talk about you know what made you move to、um, Nashville, and and、uh, what are some of the progressions since then? Seven years, you build a team. What is that like? Yeah, no. So I I was not at all expecting to leave Boston.、Uh, I was I was totally happy in in my little、uh, fiefdom, as it were,、uh, my corner of the world at MGH. But my my mentor got recruited to become the department chair at at Vanderbilt, and、uh, I can remember being in his office, and、uh, he said, "What do you think about Nashville?" And I said, "Well, I've never been to Tennessee." I said, "I think as long as I don't tell people that I'm gay and Jewish in the same sentence, it'll be fine."、Um, and I have been just delighted at how easy the transition has been, at how warm、uh, and accepting everyone has、uh, has been, and、uh, it's been probably one of the best things that I ever could have done, both personally and, and professionally for for me. Wow, I I must say I also sort of when I saw Nashville, Tennessee, and realized how open and transparent you're not only about your professional life but also your personal life. You know, I, there was a kind of deeply embedded question to kind of ask. You know, what has that experience been like? But it sounds like the transition was smooth. People were very friendly. It, it has been, and、um, you know, one of the things that、um, has been great for me professionally is、um, just the. The spirit of collaboration、um, that I have sort of found myself in, and I don't know if that's a southern thing or or if it's something unique to Vanderbilt, but、um, it's been a wonderful part of my my transition here,、um, and certainly it has facilitated、um, the success that I've been able to enjoy both、uh, in the research space as well as in other parts of my life. You know, science is a team sport, right? It's it's not about an individual. Uh, doing something on their own, you know, in a dark lab somewhere.、Um, particularly in clinical research, outcomes, health services kind of space, and I really, really feel lucky to have wonderful collaborators and support in the work that I'm that I'm doing.、Mm-hmm. I think the past seven years has been quite something for you. A lot of things <laughs> happened. Uh, as I was researching, reading Wikipedia, tell me about a little bit more about the 2014 to 15 military experience you had. You know, yeah, it was、uh, a little unexpected. I I joined the Navy sort of towards the end of my residency, and、um, I, I always thought、uh, that you know if I deployed and went somewhere, I'd rather be on a ship than in the tent in the desert. And yet there I was in Afghanistan because. 
it was a NATO trauma hospital that I was staffing. But the way that kind of things worked is um, there's a NATO facility and the Navy was providing the personnel to staff it. So even though it was sort of, uh, you know, an army run joint base uh, with NATO allies, there was as a naval officer, um, an anesthesiologist uh, in the sand. Um, one of the most challenging things I've ever done, certainly one of the most rewarding things, there are at least three service members that are home today with their families that would not be here if I hadn't been there. So that is a deeply satisfying thing to have been a, a part of. Um, at the same time, it was really hard on my family. It's hard on me. Um, you know, uh, I was very focused on the mission. You know, I, I had something that I I knew I needed to do. Um, I was engaged in, in making sure that we were ready to handle um, what was coming. And yet my now husband, uh, fiance at the time was, you know, sitting at home on the couch, wondering what I would call wait, waiting for, you know, the phone to ring, not knowing um, when exactly he was going to hear from me. And, and so it's definitely hard on him. It was hard on, on my, the rest of my family as well. Um, I think harder on them than, than it was on me, um, just because I had that sort of unit with me that I was a part of and, and very um, engaged in the, in the task at hand. But while I was there, I got to do some incredible work, um, both as a physician as, as well as trying to do some advocacy uh, for health in general. Um, and I certainly uh, value all those things. I was going to ask, what are some of the similarities between serving at inside NATO versus at a hospital such as Vanderbilt or MGH? But I guess a better question is, are there any similarities or more differences? You know, um, the medicine doesn't really change, right? Uh, human physiology is the same no matter, you know, wh where you are in the world. But uh, the equipment that we had available um, was the same sort of standard equipment that you would have in any major U.S. hospital, um, the same monitors, the same technology. Um, we didn't always have everything uh, that you would have in terms of capabilities. Um, but because of where we were, the point in the war uh, where I was serving, there was tremendous infrastructure that had been built up. The supply lines were fairly well established. Um, and so by and large, we had most of the kinds of things that you would expect. We didn't have some of the advanced imaging technologies and those kinds of things, but we even had a, a CAT scanner um, that was available for us to use um, at, this, at this facility. And that's not always the case with all of the different places where care is provided out in the field. Um, but for where I was, that was the experience that I had. Wow. I feel like the support network may be slightly different. I notice in many articles, you're the, um, you know, you are sort of the go-to, you are the expert. You know, you, you couldn't, unlike MGH, you could call up someone, you know, to have yeah. support right away. Well, what was it like for you personally on the ground? Well, you know, we had a very small team of physicians that were with us. One of the um, challenges that, that our rotation had while I was there um, was because of the drawdown in the force. They actually had had the same hospital staff with more people, more physicians, more nurses, more technicians. And so we were sort of in a transition period where they're trying to figure out how to maintain the same level of capabilities with a much smaller footprint um, because of the Department of Defense's efforts to get the total number of deployed personnel below 10,000 troops um, in theater at, at any one time. So there, there was kind of that component to the experience that was a little bit challenging. Um, but I have to say, um, in spite of having a, a small number of people um, there, um, we were a highly functional unit. Um, 
all my career, all my life as a physician, you know, I've worked in teams uh, as an anesthesiologist in the operating room. You know, we work hand in hand with our, our surgeons and our nurses and our technicians. Um, but when you are eating, living, sleeping the same tent with the same people over and over and over, you develop a level of comfort and awareness of the people around you that you just don't get in any other setting. And it's it's really pretty profound. Um, when, when I would be in the trauma bay and we would have a casualty brought to us to see the level of experience that was brought to bear on any individual patient um, and the teamwork and collaboration was extraordinary. You know, there, there are just very few circumstances where you would have, you know, five senior attending physicians simultaneously at the bedside caring for a patient anywhere in the world. You know, it, it, at my hospital at Vanderbilt, um, you know, you might have one or two, you may have consultants coming and seeing the patient individually, but to have everybody there at the bedside all at once, um, bringing all of that knowledge and skill together um, was really something that I've just never experienced um, uh, prior to that. And, and, I, and I have experienced since. And it was it's certainly a, a unique thing um, and pretty incredible to see and be a part of. Mm. The sleep together, you know, literally in the same tent, eat together. I, I never thought about that. I never had a professional experience, right? We just, we just go home and we come yeah. back and nobody want to check their emails late at night, you know, but, you know, it sounds like the, the level of synergy can never be understated. And wow, I just, I, I feel like it's almost, like you said, so profound that for anybody to even experience that, I think your life will never be the same, really. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and as I think about, you know, the military certainly um, has brought a lot to civilian medicine in terms of our understanding about techniques and acute blood loss and the way that we can um, approach trauma surgery. But there's also a whole component around team-based care uh, and interprofessional approaches to providing, um, you know, the best that we can um, that I think we still have a lot to, a lot to learn from on the civilian side. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I um, when I interviewed a few guests who have been in military service, I noticed that sometimes they they do tell me a lot of that experience feels they feel traumatized by certain moments. They find it hard to reflect, and I'm really thankful that you're able to. And I wonder, out of the you know three and many more people you helped, but three in critical condition who would have not reunited with their families. If you weren't there, do you remember maybe one instance of what that scene was like, what that moment was like for you? Um, there, there are many instances of patients that I took care of that, that you know, I, I will never forget. And I, I remember, um, in fact, one of the most poignant things that I, I remember um, was a, a soldier, an army soldier um, who had been shot, um, who, who came in pretty beat up and we took care of him. We got him in the operating room got him stabilized and, and, and I'll never forget watching him walk out of the hospital with, you know, his arm, you know, holding on to one of his battle buddies, but, but more or less, uh, of his own force being able to leave and, and go back. And, and, and I know that he would be back, uh, back in the fight. He wasn't going back to the U S he was staying with his, with his unit and knowing that, um, you know, we were able to sort of help him and, and so many others, um, you know, maintain uh, their ability to contribute to the mission was was just incredibly, incredibly warning. It was also equally, you know, um, sort of poignant and impressed in my mind. Um, 
some of those that, that did not survive. And, and we had um, incredible success at saving people, but not everyone. Um, and those were, were challenging moments for, for all of us. I attended several funerals while I was overseas, um, remembrances of those that had fallen and the, the bravery and courage um, that um, was witnessed uh, and described to me um, by you know, those who had served alongside um, those who had fallen was just extraordinary. And, um, and those actually uh, are some of the memories that, that I know will stay with me for, for the rest of my life. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I know it can be challenging. And what I find particularly intriguing is the fact that, you know, in, in 2015, I learned that um, he, you were asking a question to, I believe at the time, 2015, um, Secretary of Defense. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, the moment I read that, I just imagined, I wish I could find that video of him being questioned that, and I want to see his response in real time. But even just by reading that, that was like enough for me. So tell me about, I want you to share the experience. <laughs> yeah, no. So um, shortly after I got to Afghanistan, one of the Air Force docs called me and, and said that they were sending a, an airman over that needed some assistance from the hospital. Uh, and she then said that this airman was transgender. And I was a bit surprised because at the time, uh, there was a ban on transgender service in the last place you would expect to find a transgender um, airman was deployed um, because of all of the, the reasons um, that you can imagine. Um, and yet here was this, this person who showed up at our hospital. Um, and so fortunately, he, he didn't actually need a whole lot of medical care, um, a little bit of assistance, and he was, he was basically good to go. But I, I stayed in touch with him, and we kind of became friendly. Um, and um, it became clear to me that here was just an incredibly courageous person who all he wanted to do um, was to be uh, with his unit, handling the mission, and frankly, um, was, was stressed by what, who was going to find out, how is it going to impact his career, was going to be able to, to stay and, and do what he'd been trained to do um, and, and to perform his job. And so a few months later, we had one of these kind of unannounced uh, troop town halls and the new Secretary of Defense, it was, I believe, his sixth day on the job. He had just been sworn in, um, arrived. Um, I was present at that troop town hall um, and this transgender airman was next to me and I sort of recognized that literally this was a person who had no voice right who could not stand up and and ask about this issue um, because of the situation that he was in and so I I turned to him and I said if you could ask any question what would it be? And, and so I stood up and asked the Secretary of Defense in front of the press pool his thoughts on open transgender service in an austere environment like Kandahar, where we were in Afghanistan. Uh, and the Secretary gave a very favorable response. Um, he apparently had not read the talking points <laughs> uh, his staff should have given him. It was only day six. Um, and uh, so that led to some very positive steps at the time. Uh, 
the moratorium on discharge, the review and ultimate decision by the previous administration to end the ban on transgender service June 30th of, of 2016, um, a little over a year after um, I had the opportunity to ask that question uh, while I was deployed. Mm. It's not just the word open-minded could really cover it, but like you said, you know, how courageous that is to to step forward and to serve the country and you know, that somehow is overlooked. And instead, people are focusing on, you know, something, in my opinion, they're completely irrelevant. And there we are, and we're having this conversation, and it's just so refreshing and encouraging to hear that from someone like you. In addition to your military service, I noticed that you are uh, a strong, av- you know, advocator for LGBTI, um, you know, for patient care, uh, possibly for other physicians and doctors as well. So I want to learn more about, you know, what you're doing today and really in the past decade. Yeah, well, you know, unfortunately, um, LGBTI health is just not something that historically has been taught in medical schools. And... Uh, when I got to Vanderbilt, um, there was a desire on the part of our students um, to to learn more, to be better prepared to to serve patients. Um, and so the the school, the institution, embraced that and said, you know, we ought to be doing better. Uh, it's a disservice to our students and to our patients um, to not provide the right kinds of opportunities to integrate this content um, into our training programs. And so we, we went through kind of a systematic exercise of trying to figure out where we could integrate content into our existing curriculum. Um, and we pretty quickly discovered that you can teach something in the classroom, but if you don't then model that behavior in the clinical learning environment, our clinics, our hospitals, um, then you won't be successful. Um, and so it was not long after we embarked on some curricular reform efforts that we recognize we really need to start building our clinical programs. Um, and so it was really that that drove the creation of the Vanderbilt program for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and intersex health. Um, and the, the acronym is a bit of a sticky issue because, um, you know, patients know what LGBT means. Um, NIH and others have moved to language um, that gets away from letters and they, they talk about sex and gender minorities, um, but patients don't know what sex and gender minorities are. Um, people on the street don't think of themselves as a sex or gender minority. So we, we've stuck with, with LGBTI um, and we have a, uh, a clinic for intersex or disorder or patients with differences of sex development at Vanderbilt. And so while intersex patients are quite different than transgender patients, a lot of the medical considerations are, are similar, um, and so is the expertise required to care for those patients. And so our programs decided um, at the outset, and we continue today, to include those patient populations and those that we are, are focused on. Mm. I think you're really good at picking uh, difficult subjects. You know, I don't think most people can imagine what you have accomplished at a young age. And I, I couldn't print out your CV. It was literally 63 pages long. I was so I have so many questions uh, on many of these pages, but in particular, you are, you know, in the medical fields, you are already seen as being very successful. And 
On top of that, you've picked a topic. It may be difficult to approach, maybe turning some people on or off. It's in a in a way a quote unquote not very safe topic for you to to go after. How has that impacted your professional personal life? And great question. I mean, certainly um, LGBT health is definitely not as safe as um, calcium channel signaling uh, or other research areas. Um, but it's something I'm passionate about. And I made a decision early on um, that uh, it was a place where there, where I could have an impact and I needed to have an impact. And um, I, I do remember going to my department chair uh, shortly after I got to Vanderbilt and, and having a very frank conversation with him and, and saying, you know, um, there's an opportunity here and I really want to pursue this to work in, in, in the field of LGBT health. And without hesitation, he said, I will support you the entire way. And he has, has, has held true to that um, and made it much, I think, easier than it could have been if I were at a place where there wasn't that kind of support. Um, you know, Vanderbilt has a long history of advocating for equality. Um, and if you look at kind of steps it's taken as an institution, um, it's been very progressive and out in front of those issues. Um, for any institution, let alone an institution in the South. And I know our leadership has been very proud um, of the fact that we have really led on a lot of these issues. We were the second academic medical center in the country to have a program for LGBTI health um, after you know the University of California, San Francisco. Uh, and we're very proud of that and, and continue to be. There definitely have been moments in my political career um, where people have said to me, this is going to prevent you from taking the next step, being successful. And I made a decision that if it was going to, that I would just have to deal with the consequences of that. And uh, and thus far, that has not been the case. I feel very lucky. Um, I think, you know, that when I was growing up and I came out at, at age 19, I didn't have a lot of role models to, to look to, um, successful, out gay physicians um, who are making an impact. And so it's it's been, in some cases, challenging to figure out what that pathway is and, and what that looks like. Um, and I hope that I've been able to to be a role model for, for others. Um, and certainly, you know, I, I really love the opportunity to to mentor trainees and students and other people in, in this work and field. And, and I think that that's really how we, how we create change and, and get to a better place across the country. Mm. Wow. I, I love just how daring that decision is. And I mean, this isn't any career change or impact to a career, you know, a medical fields and study. And it's just this long, drawn out, full commitment. Every doctor I interviewed said, you better love it wholeheartedly because there's there's no turning back. You know, I, I just love those moments. And I've spoken with... Uh, many people on this podcast. I feel like I love going after people who make decisions that are sort of out, out of the ordinary or a decision that many other people simply wouldn't choose. Um, with that said, there's one area that I absolutely love, I personally feel very strongly about, Lisa Leffert feels very strongly about, is coaching young physicians. And uh, you are also young, which I find that probably very easy for them to relate to. But I heard things that, uh, you know, physicians uh, after training internship, by the time you come out of school, you're ready to be a doctor, you're often, I don't know, timeline-wise in your late 20s, 30, and you have 
still very little experience kind of interacting with the real world, even how to market yourself as a physician. So there are a lot of questions sort of unanswered that people are struggling with. Could you tell me a bit more about how your coaching and teaching goes in that domain area? Yeah, no, I, I think that a couple of things that I always try to advise, you know, others that I, that I work with on is, is one is, is you have to find something that you're passionate about, or, you know, it's, it's going to be impossible to have a 30 plus year career that's sustained and fulfilling that doesn't lead to you being burnt out. Um, if, if you don't really, really, truly love what, what you're doing. And, you know, I think a lot of people are multi-potential and, and they end up in a specialty or a field because of a, a mentor or some, you know, rotation that they did. Um, but that doesn't mean that people can't change direction. And, and I've seen a lot of very successful um, people, you know, make decisions about changing direction. My primary, most longstanding mentor, um, you know, was a basic scientist doing crystallography um, and had very, very early success in that, had uh, good NIH funding um, and decided one day to, to basically hang that up and pivot into health services research and informatics and um, then had a very successful career um, in kind of the operational management space um, and has, has done some other interesting things totally different than where where they started out. So I always try to tell people that I think it's important um, to keep an open mind um, because you may have spent, uh, you know, every ounce of energy up to a certain point uh, focused in one area, but there may be something else that may be related. It may be synergistic or it may be totally different. But but I think it's important, particularly for um, early professionals to sort of maintain that mindset. The other thing I always advise people is um, I really can't emphasize the the level of importance of mentors. And, um, you know, I, I have lots of mentors and lots of people that I look to for advice. And I, I really try to surround myself with people um, that can sort of help help guide me. And, you know, you don't always have to take your mentor's advice. Um, but I really, really believe that getting a variety of perspectives on decisions that you're making um, is helpful. And, and that can be a very formal thing. It can be a very, a very informal thing. And there are, are plenty of people that I have met along the way that, that I have stayed in touch with that you know, probably don't consider me their mentee, um, but I'll reach out to them from time to time or, or give them updates uh, or ask them for advice. Um, and I know that I get mentorship from them. And so things sometimes uh, don't have to be labeled, uh, but I think that um, recognizing that, you know, surrounding yourself with, with bright, motivated, successful people um, is certainly something that I've tried to do and I think that can be helpful. Mm, I love that message. And I've seen it elsewhere outside of hospitals. And personally, for me, it's in marketing consulting where how, you know, how helpful that type of program can be, but oftentimes overlooked. You know, people are not incentivized to to be a mentor or a mentee. And and then even the as a mentor, uh, as a role I played, I learned so much from the people that I interacted with. Uh, I know I mentioned age several times. I, I noticed there's something that I captured at the top. You were part of an organization or a speaker that I believe in Massachusetts that's been around for 228 years. And oh, yes. <laughs> you were the youngest. 
The Massachusetts Medical Society. Yeah, no, I, I was elected um, vice speaker and then speaker, uh, and I had the distinction of being the youngest person in that role uh, in the 200-something year history of the organization. And uh, that was in spite of doing work in LGBT health. <laughs> and, and one of the fun things for me is that I was the vice speaker for three years, and then I became speaker. And, and when I was the vice speaker, the speaker of the society, um, who became a, a, good, a good friend and, and also a mentor, um, Dr. Rick Peters, who is a radiation oncologist uh, in Massachusetts, he and I graduated from the same high school, uh, Andover and Phillips Academy, uh, except he had graduated exactly 30 years before I had. And uh, it was just a wonderful thing um, to, to work with him. Um, and then the person who became my vice speaker um, and then ultimately speaker, um, he and I were at the same high school at the same time. And uh, Dr. Dave Rosman, uh, a radiologist uh, in Boston, uh, and he was uh, a year ahead of me uh, at Andover. Wow. What, what was it like for you to maybe speak in front of an audience and, you know, among other speakers, uh, belong to the same organization and be someone who's so young? I mean, how how does that make you feel? Do you feel that there's just this insane amount of pressure that's been put on you? There definitely was a little bit of pressure. Um, fortunately, uh, people really liked what I did, so that, that made it easier. Um, I think I was pretty well received. But I think like with anything else, whether you're young uh, or old, white or Asian or black, gay, trans, whatever, um, if you can prove yourself and you can do the work that you are assigned or set out to do, then those things shouldn't matter. And, and I, really, I really firmly believe that. Unfortunately, um, I think that underrepresented groups, those who have been marginalized by society, often find themselves in a position where they have to prove themselves to get the opportunity to get that chance. Um, and that's, that's unfortunate. They're not given the benefit of the doubt um, the way that, that others are. For me, that's just made me work harder. And I found that, you know, fortunately, I've been able to, you know, have a successful career in, in a lot of different spaces. Um, but that's been my kind of perspective on it. Mm. it you might not see yourself or might not even enjoy to be called an overachiever. And so looking at your profile and for people outside of Massachusetts, you know, Phillips Academy is, I would say, one of the most competitive schools in the country. And I know people graduate from there, from Commonwealth School, sort of BBNNs, all within that network. I remember reading a story about a Chinese woman who graduated from Phillips moved on to Harvard and wrote an article about how easy Harvard seems to be uh, for her. So what was that transition like? I want to talk about high school. I think it's such a... Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I, 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 will, I will concur with that woman that I have never worked as hard in my life at any <laughs> point. Not in college, not in medical school, not in residency, um, as I did when I was at Andover. Um, it, it was intense. It, it was um, uh, a time where I was incredibly focused. Um, I was managing my time down to the minute, get everything done. Um, but I walked away from that incredibly well prepared to do um, so much um, later in my life. And I, I feel um, incredibly indebted um, to the experience um, because I know that um, it set me up to be where I am today. 
Wow. You know, a lot of millennials these days, as they're thinking about it, because a lot of the listeners are younger and they, some of them might never become doctors. Some of them may be particularly very interested in this path, uh, not knowing what type of doctors they're going to become just yet. Some like to take time off or kind of explore other interests. What's your take on that? Because what I've heard recently is if they decide to take some time off, that might actually take away the opportunity or sort of the momentum they build from undergrad to medical school? Yeah, it's hard to go back to school. Um, people do it, but I, I have I have seen time and time again, whether it's advanced training after one is, is done and is in practice, um, to come back to school or, or go back and get another degree, um, or after you graduate college to, to then come back into a, a structured program, particularly if you're you know, making some money and, and you've got kind of a life that, that you enjoy. Um, you know, every year we have uh, a number of kind of non-traditional students that don't go right into medical school from college at, at Vanderbilt. And I think that they bring a really helpful and unique perspective, but, but it, can be, it can be challenging. When I was graduating from college, you know, I had friends who were going to Wall Street and work for Goldman Sachs, you know, investment banking and, and other other kind of interesting things like that. And 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 for a little while I was kind of jealous. I was like, wow, like they're getting to do this all, all this cool stuff and they've got like a real job and they're making some money. And and then when I when I got to medical school, I realized that suddenly I had all kinds of opportunities, um, both with individual people, um, a window into their lives, um, as well as beyond um, that, that people just don't get uh, without being a physician. And so um, my, my second year of medical school, um, I had an opportunity to go to China. Um, and it was um, the China Medical Board of New York wanted to have a, a conference on the ethics of human subjects protections. And they were looking for a handful of, of U.S. medical students to, to come and, and to, to be a part of that. And so um, I kind of raised my hand and applied and was selected. And, and I got to go to China and have just an incredible cultural exchange to sort of hear and, and learn and participate about the different perspectives um, that people have on, you know, how do we really engage patients in consent and what does it mean to... Um, to do medical research um, from that perspective. Um, and, and those kinds of opportunities, uh, whether it's in advocacy or, or service, um, have just never stopped um, since I, I became a medical trainee and, and now a physician. And so I, I, I'm no longer jealous of my friends. I, I have discovered that, that going through you know, my training pathway has given me different opportunities, um, but opportunities that are just extraordinary beyond belief. And I, I really value that. Mm, wow. Oh, I get asked a lot of questions sometimes from my mentees about um, work-life balance and family um, oh God. because it's hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for a lot of people um, because, you know, coming to work doesn't feel like work. I love it. I love what I do. And, um, and so making sure that I have some sense of making sure that things are, are where they need to be with the rest of my life is important. Um, and so my, my husband and I talk about that fairly often. Um, and, and we have uh, not always gotten it right, but we've gotten to a, a really good spot with how we kind of communicate and, and manage that. Um, most days, um, I try to be home at five o'clock with my husband and we, we take our dog for a walk and we leave our cell phones at home. And, and, and for that hour, I, I know that, that we'll be there with each other. And no matter what happens afterwards or what happens before, 
um, we always have that time to kind of reconnect and we do other things like that. But I think that um, making sure that um, there are mechanisms in place, regardless of whether you're married or, or have a significant other or not, um, to ensure that you can always kind of have that restorative, uh, those restorative moments, um, because I think, frankly, those are kind of what sustain me uh, and the rest of the work that I do. I love that advice because it's um, very easy to engage. I think it's practical and also very achievable. Um, I I hoped I'd go to uh, Nashville one day. And uh, this just has been such an incredible experience for me talking to you, Jesse. I really should definitely come down. It's a great city and a lot to check out. Yeah, for sure. A lot to learn. I So, well, thank you so much. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me and I uh, appreciate the opportunity. Hey, it's Faye. I am back for a few words at the end of the show. I hope you enjoy what you heard. You can visit us online at faceworld.com or social channels such as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, also under FaceWorld to keep things simple. I personally review and respond to all the messages. Love to hear from you. Thank you and lots of hugs. See you next week.